Hi there, it's Josh. And for the SYS case selects this week, I've chosen how McCarthyism works. Unfortunately, it seems like it's always a pertinent time to cover McCarthyism. There's always some jerk who's persecuting other people. And I hope uh, it opens some eyes. Might not otherwise have been open. Uh, to our friends in the gay community, our apologies for using the word homosexual without making air quotes. Uh, this was five or so years ago. And I like to think we've evolved somewhat since then, but still, sorry about that. Uh, and just as a final note, you should probably disregard the rules to the contest that's now defunct. That's come up at the end of the episode. Contest has come and gone, and uh, it was fun. So enjoy the Stuff You Should Know Selects. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. The dream police, they get me out of my bed. That's They're all in my words. head. In my head, right? The dream police, they live inside of my head. Okay. Well, come to me in my bed. Okay, thank you. I'm so glad you're here, Mr. 40-year-old guy. <laughs> hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and that is Chuck Bryant. Is that how we're starting? Yeah. All right. And uh, since we started, since we started off with Dream Police, you know that this is stuff you should know, and you actually now know more about the Dream Police than you did before. I'll wager. Yeah, that's one of my Halloween costume goals. One day is to uh, dress up as a Dream Policeman. How would you do that? Just mimic what they did on the cover. They were like these white police uniforms, and it was all white. Huh. It's cool. Okay. I saw a tour t-shirt, an original tour t-shirt. Who is that? Cheap Trick. Oh, is it? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. That was my very first concert. Nice. Mm -hmm. Was it the Dream Police tour? No, no. I'm not that uh, old. Okay. <laughs> it's the one-on-one -on -one tour. So, uh, I'm Josh. That's Chuck. Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And this is the weirdest intro we've ever done. Yeah. Hands down. But um, we're here. We've started. Uh, How Stuff Works can only afford so much tape, so we can't go back and record over this. Nope. Um, so we're just going to plug ahead. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Uh, Chuck. Josh. We talked about Cheap Trick, but have you ever heard of another band called the Dixie Chicks? Uh, indeed. You have? Uh-huh. Sure. So you may remember that back in 2003, and I believe March of 2003, apparently like 10 days before the U.S. invaded Iraq, uh -huh. but when everybody knew that the U.S. was about to invade Iraq... The Dixie Chicks had a um, concert in London. Yeah. And um, on stage, uh, the lead singer, whose name escapes me at the moment. Natalie, I believe. Okay, Natalie. Um, she uh, basically came out and said that they opposed the war um, and that they they opposed the violence. And that here was the kicker, that they're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Dixie Chicks are also from Texas. Right. But they were saying they're ashamed of the president, right? Yeah, I remember that. This is in London, and they still did not have an easy time of it. Immediately, the international press jumped on it. Yeah. It made its way back to the United States, and it was war on the Dixie Chicks and their uh, lack of patriotism and their disloyalty. Uh, people held demonstrations where they burned their CDs and yeah. T-shirts and stuff. Oh, yeah. um, and... Uh, Ultimately, there was a, a, a radio group called Clearwater, I believe, that refused to give them any radio play. And uh, 
it was pretty rough going for him. They couldn't get any work or anything like that for several years. And I was looking for um, something to intro this episode on McCarthyism with. There you go. That is new McCarthyism. Yeah, they were blacklisted. Yeah, they couldn't get work because they expressed an unpopular, unpatriotic sentiment. Yeah. And uh, basically everybody turned on them. McCarthyism. Almost hysterically, one could say, they were turned on. Yeah. Very good. But they're back, baby. The Dixie <laughs> Chicks are back and better than ever. Are they? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't they uh, do like a whole lot of like USO touring and stuff to like kind of uh, shake it off? Uh, I don't know. I think they did. Hooked up with Toby Keith. Yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. Yeah, his jingoism rubs off on you like stank. You get near that guy, and you just like start to turn red, white, and blue. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, McCarthyism is that where we are? Yeah, I think I got us there. So where do we start with this, man? Communism. Well, I, I, well, let's define McCarthyism. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, um, modern touchstone, but there's an actual definition of it. What does Webster say? Well, what is the American <laughs> Heritage Dictionary? Hey, man, Webster was British. You turn to the American Heritage Dictionary to look up McCarthyism. That's right. Uh, the political practice of publicizing accusations of disloyalty or subversion with insufficient regard to evidence. So that's kind of the key there. Yeah, it's basically saying, like, I publicly accuse you of being disloyal to this country and not caring about mom and apple pie and baseball, and I'm going to tell everybody about it. And I do, even though I don't really have any real evidence. It's yeah. just suspicion. Yeah. It's railroading. And this was all because of Jenny McCarthy, right? Yeah. Cormac McCarthy? Sure. Okay. <laughs> no, of course. Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. That was his name, and he was a senator. Should we give a little background on this guy? Yeah, born in 1908, if I'm not mistaken. That is right. He's a Scani. He went to Marquette, Golden Eagles. Go Golden Eagles. Really? Yeah. You know them from basketball? No, I, I looked it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it's pretty impressive. I do know them from basketball, though. Uh, he became an attorney in 1935 during the Great Depression and became the youngest circuit court judge in Wisconsin history in 1939. At the age of 31. Very young. Yeah, that is young for a judge. Even then, even in old-timey times. That's right. Uh, joined the Marines in World War II, but because of a hazing uh, incident or accident, had a broken foot, so he was, I guess, discharged? Yeah, after honorably. two years. But impressively, he made it to captain in those two years, so he's a Marine captain. And he rode that for all it was worth yeah. as far as using it to get elected to a Senate. Right. He uh, he In 1944? He ran for Senate in Wisconsin and lost, Yeah, but uh, that's where he cultivated his image of Tail Gunner Joe. Yeah. That was his name. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he, he just kind of, like you said, rode that military service for all it was worth. Yes, but he did win a couple of years later in uh, 1946 and became a junior senator mm -hmm. and was sort of floundering as a senator as far as making a name for himself until... Uh, he latched on to the idea of, um, let's get some attention here and start calling out people in in power as, as secret communists. Yeah. So he had like this two-prong attack, Chuck. It wasn't just like calling out these secret communists. It was simultaneously calling out the soft liberal establishment that was apparently fine with letting communists gain position of powers within the U.S. government. Which was not true. Or was it? <laughs> it was not. Well, in, in 1950, in uh, West Virginia, he gave a speech um, on Lincoln's birthday, 
And he had this list of like 208 names of people who worked for the State Department that he said were like communists, drug addicts, sexual deviants, which was AKA for being gay, um, and said that these people need to be rooted out. And the list was accurate. It had been published a few years before by the State Department. But he was using it as an example of not only are these is this real, are these people really in government power, Right. but the State Department itself published this list and these people still work there. So what's going on? Let's go get the commies out of government, okay? And um, almost immediately, this fervor, this anti-communist fervor that had just been kind of slumbering and was there and taking shape, Right. it was plenty there. People didn't like the communists in the U.S. before McCarthy. That's right. But McCarthy came and added a level of jingoism to it that just completely created this anti-communist hysteria in America. Yeah, there's a little bit of, I don't know about controversy, but back and forth about how many people are on this list. Uh, initially, it was, they, he said 205, but then when he submitted the speech formally to Truman the next day, or I think two days later, it was 57 names. Right. And so it's kind of gone back and forth over the years on whether or not it was 205 or 57. So I think it was, I think the original list that he got his hands on and was unedited was 205, but possibly there's just 57 communists on the list and the rest were drug addicts or alcoholics or whatever. Oh, okay. The irony is, Chuck, that um, had he been screened by that State Department test, he probably would have been on the list himself because he was a pronounced alcoholic, Joe <laughs> yeah. McCarthy was. And, did you know this, he was apparently gay. Uh, I've heard that, but there's been no proof of that. No, it is conjecture, but it, uh, there's conjecture that not only was he gay, and there was rumor back in the 50s, oh, but yeah. not only uh, is there conjecture that he was gay, but that uh, his top aide, Roy Cohn, and Roy Cohn's top aide, David Shine, uh, were gay as well. Well, I don't think, I think Cohn was... Was he definitely gay? Yeah. Okay. I mean, he, he died of AIDS in the 80s. Not that that means you're gay. No. But I think he was known to be gay. Okay. Well, and, that one and, was lost on me. Of course, uh, uh, what's his name, too? Uh, J. Edgar. Well, yeah. So it was weird, a weird time. Yeah, there's a lot of homosexuals persecuting other homosexuals. Yeah, it, using seemingly. Using public office for that. Allegedly. Uh, well, I'm curious then. I mean, was is McCarthy just uh, gay by association because... Roy Cohn was? I don't know. I think it was just never proven. Like, he dated two of the Kennedy girls mm -hmm. and was married later on. Well, he got married. Yeah, he got married in ni like 1952, right after the first public accusation that he was gay was published <laughs> in a column. That's usually So he turned around and married his secretary, and then they adopted a five week old. That's kind of the formula, isn't it? I guess so. Like, oh no, I'm in love with my secretary. Right. Look, <laughs> watch this. <laughs> <laughs> So whether he was or whether he wasn't is kind of irrelevant, but it's fun to talk about. Yeah. Um, or is it irrelevant? Well, though? no, it's not. Of course not. Okay. All right. Let's get back to it. So he uh, he starts waving this list. The list is out there. 
He's got proof that the government's turning its back on known communists who work in its own ranks, and um, America starts just going crazy. Well, yeah, and it's it's important to know what's going on here at the time. This is the second Red Scare. Mm-hmm. The first one was during World War One and after, and it was pretty brutal. Yeah, like jailing people, uh, deporting people with not much evidence. This was the second one, and at the time, a couple of things had uh, happened that preceded a speech. Um, China had just been taken over a couple of months earlier by communists. Chairman Mao. Very big deal. Uh, the Soviet had just exploded their first atomic bomb. Thanks to the Rosenbergs. Very, well, we'll get to that, too. Uh, and uh, leaders of the Communist Party of the United States, which I think they maxed out at about 75,000 members at a certain point, which is a lot of people. Respectable. Uh, <laughs> uh, they had been convicted of conspiring to overthrow the, the government. So people were ready for this speech. It was like just the icing on the cake for this fervor. Right. And I think something that's often overlooked, because all of the blame for this hysteria, if you can call it that even these days, um, is laid at the feet of Joe McCarthy. But he was definitely building upon, like you say, something that was already there. Like yeah. there was the Sedition Act, the Espionage Act. Yeah. Uh, the Alien Registration Act. Yeah. All these were acts that were passed by the U.S. government in response to fear of communists, and he figured out how to use them to his advantage to root communists out of the country, basically. And to make a name for himself. Well, that was as part a of politician. it as well, for yeah. sure. That might have been a big part of it. His big problem was, though, was that um, it's not illegal to be a communist in the United States. Sure it is. It's not, though. <laughs> it is illegal, thanks to the Alien Registration Act, to even abet, to basically sit by and let somebody try to overthrow the government. Yeah. And that's what they used to arrest the leaders of the Communist Party of the United States. Subversion. Yeah. Yep. That's what he was trying to get everybody on. So basically, he would bring you in front of his congressional committee and just give you the business, basically say, admit it. Yeah, and the other thing, too, though, is like he was immediately almost attacked by both political parties for this speech. He wasn't it wasn't like people the president was rallying around McCarthy. He didn't get along with Truman or Eisenhower. No, Truman was one of his great detractors. Yeah. Eisenhower was a supporter at first, but as we'll see, changed changed sides. Ooh. I know. <laughs> uh but yeah, he he found Truman to be uh, a little too soft on communists even though Truman was the one who made sure the Alien Registration Act got passed. It's a weird time. Yeah, it really was. So should we talk about the Rosenberg, since you've lobbed that out there? I have. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg uh, very famously were executed, only Americans ever to be executed for espionage. In the Cold War. Period, right? No? No, I think the Civil War had plenty of people executed oh, for espionage. Know, they, they hung people left and right back <laughs> right. then. <laughs> uh, and they were, were, in fact, communists. They were known communists, and... Pled the fifth, which a lot of people did, which ended up biting them all on their collective tuchuses. Yeah. Because that was tantamount to a lot of people as a guilty plea. Right. And, of course, the Fifth Amendment gives you the right to not uh, testify on your own behalf. Um, to incriminate yourself? Right? Yeah, to protect against self-incrimination. Right. The problem is, is I think even today, a lot of people say, well, what what do you have to incriminate yourself about? If you don't want to say anything, doesn't that mean you have something to hide? You're guilty. Right. And that was huge, huge during the uh, McCarthy trials. That if you pled the fifth, you were basically saying, like, I'm I'm not admitting to being guilty. And everybody said, it's guilty. That's true. Yeah. But, however, the Rosenbergs um, 
it has been found through uh, the the Venona transcripts. Yeah, and those were where they they were secret uh, Russian taped recordings that were decoded in the forties. In the forties. But held on to until what, the 2000s? 1995 is when they were released and made public. So now that the Venona transcripts are out, we know that uh, Ethel McCart, or I'm sorry, Ethel uh, Rosenberg was at the most an an accessory to this Uh and not, you know, a a blatant uh, seller of of American secrets. But was her husband guilty? Her husband was guilty of, of, uh, well, here's what this says. It says... They did not give the Soviets the secret of the bomb because they never possessed the secret of the bomb. Okay. And that there was evidence that Julius was passing on information to the KGB, but it was uh, military-industrial rather than atomic. Well, selling out Boeing. (laughs) So it's not like they were like, yay, that's great. They were just working with the KGB on other things. But the fact that they were executed is largely looked on now that this has come out as a miscarriage of justice. Well, plus also, if they're blamed, like in this very article, they're blamed for passing along the information that gave the Russians the bomb. Not so. Which (laughs) which led to like one of the tensest periods in world history. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I imagine just their reputation, aside from the fact that they were executed, just their reputation being tarnished in that way, that's kind of a big deal. It was. But you mentioned the Venona cables. They were intercepted and decoded in the 40s. The problem was McCarthy apparently didn't have clearance enough to get his hands on these things. Oh, yeah? So this is all the evidence he ever needed, but he could never produce it. So what he did instead was use really awful bully tactics to intimidate people into admitting they were communists. And every single interview, every single session was started with the same question as far as I understand, right? Yeah, are you now or have you ever been? I don't even have it in front of me. What was it? It is, uh, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party of the United States? Right. That's how I thought you were going to open the show, by the way. No. I was going to talk about the Dream Police and the Dixie <laughs> Chicks. How did you not see that coming? I don't know. Uh, he did all this, uh, it should be known, from the seat as the chairman of the Senate Committee on Government Operations, which um, increased his level of power, but I think initially he was given that position to sort of Say here, just go play in that sandbox. Like, yeah, I don't think they realized what power it gave him at the time. He was very smart. He he knew what he was doing. But this was not HUAC. No, and let's talk about HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee. Yes, first established in 1937. Yeah, and it was established to investigate things like espionage, subversion, that kind of thing, including stuff by communists. But it also originally uh, investigated. Uh, subversion by the right and the left. Yeah, and it was the House, and he was a senator. Oh, yeah. So that's why a lot of people, I think, still rem- or think that he was the chairman of HUAC, but that's not the case. Well, he how did he use it then? I think they worked in concert. Okay. That's the best I could figure out. And I was looking at that. I was like, well, why is it always talking yeah. about HUAC? Because they were involved in the blacklist of Hollywood. Right. But he was heading up that thing. So So I guess maybe it was just kind of hand in hand, like you say, working yeah. in concert. Because the blacklist of Hollywood happened three years before he even gave his speech in West Virginia. Oh, is that when it started? Yeah. Um, well, well it. the HUAC, the House on American Activities Committee, uh, was started in 1937 by... Um, like I said, they investigated the right and the left, but they never investigated the Klan because apparently the three guys who were in power of the HUAC were all Klan 
sympathizers, if not members. <laughs> wow. So the Klan never got investigated, but everybody else did, including the communists. And it was already um, sniffed out as uh, just a really um, insincere political tool. That's how it was being used. And uh, there was a guy who was the head of the progressives, and he basically said, you guys are using this committee as a way to wrap the flag over your grease-stained togas. Um, and and <laughs> you, you never have to uh, you never have to explain your vote because all you can do you can oppose anything you can oppose labor unions right. you can oppose the farmer you can oppose anything you want and never have to answer for it because you just say that you're fighting the communists. And yeah, well, the labor unions was a big part of the first Red Scare. Yeah, it was the rise of the labor unions and all these strikes going on and people are like, well, the labor parties they're they're communists. Right, exactly. But that's how it happens. Like basically, they say that labor party communism same thing. The American public doesn't put too much thought into it, buys it, and now, still to this day, people people compare the two. Yeah. It's sad. It is. It's left an indelible <laughs> mark, you could say. It has. Um, and like you said, he was an intimidator, uh, threatened prison, no evidence or very little evidence, and he would attack people, release names publicly, and ruin people's lives without yeah. any recourse, uh, except that... In 1957, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, constitutional rights of witnesses were guaranteed during a congressional investigation, even though it's not court. Right. So they got a law in the books, thankfully. Thanks to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, apparently McCarthy's big problem was he had good information, just no evidence. Like, he got all of his information from the FBI, right. from Hoover's FBI, but it was basically just hearsay and conjecture that was right. There was just no evidence to back it up. So, yeah, he just used to try to beat people over the head and intimidate them into agreeing. And it worked a lot of times. Oh, yeah. It had worked before, too, when Hollywood was blacklisted. Um, there was. Do you want to talk about Hollywood? Yeah, let's, let's do it. This is the most interesting part to me as a movie guy. Um, so we were talking about how there was this blacklist that was created. There's an official version, as I understand, right? An official blacklist? Is there, or was it all unofficial? Um, no. I mean, like, 320 people were on it, but there's some, like, Orson Welles was supposedly on it, yeah. and Charlie Chaplin, but yeah. I don't think that was proven. Or maybe I'm wrong. I couldn't find... I, I mean, I found a list of people, but right. I don't know if there was an official list passed around. There probably was. So, basically, there was, um, there was a pamphlet called Red Channels, and it was put together by um, some FBI guys and a producer in Hollywood, a right-leaning producer, and it, it was a blacklist. It was basically yeah. the blacklist, um, and it was distributed to everybody in the entertainment industry. And basically, if your name was on there, to get work, you had to go appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee mm -hmm. or McCarthy yeah. and clear your name, and then you could get work again. Or name names. Name names, and a lot of people did, like Lee J. Cobb, yeah. great actor in 12 Angry Men. He named names. He apparently put up a heck of a fight for a while and then finally said, like, my family's starving, and I thought about it. I'm not willing to die for this, so here's some names. And then he named some names, and some of those people would name some more names, and people were naming yeah. names. Other people were going to Europe, like Chet Baker. He was on the, the list because he was gay, as far as I understand. So he went to Europe and never came back to the U.S., I believe. Yeah, Chaplin went overseas to get work, too. Um, Elia, Elia Kazan, mm -hmm. very famously named names, director, legendary director of On the Waterfront, named eight names of people that... Uh, 
were already known to be communists. So that was his reasoning was, I got to save my career. I'm not willing to go down for this. They already know these people. So I'm just going to name those eight. Yeah. And he was, uh, did you watch the Oscars in 2002 when he got his honorary award? Uh-uh. It was divisive, to say the least. They, really? they brought him out there. I think um, Scorsese and De Niro brought him out, and um, they showed reaction shots of the crowd, some people standing and cheering, and then, like, Ed Harris and Amy Madigan, like, sitting there scowling, <laughs> and, like, Nick Nolte sitting on his hands. Yeah, you don't want to tick off Amy <laughs> Madigan. I bet she's mean. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, that was really divisive. Um before the blacklist, though, or I don't know if it was before the blacklist, but the Hollywood Ten were very famous because they were ten screenwriters. I think one was a, I think nine of the ten were screenwriters. One was a director, but they always pick on the writers. It seems like, yeah. But uh, they were uh, questioned by McCarthy and said, "We're not cooperating. We're going to claim our First Amendment right to free speech." And eight were sentenced to a year in prison. Two received six month sentences, and out of the blacklist, and that was uh, the Waldorf statement very famously was issued. Um, the the head of the MPAA met with uh, basically the member of every major Hollywood studio behind mm-hmm. closed doors, mm-hmm. developed their blacklist, released the Waldorf statement because it was at the Waldorf Astoria, mm-hmm. and said, uh, these people aren't going to work again. <laughs> and here are their names. Wow. And I think only at the end, out of the 300 and something, only about 10% ever like worked again. It's so sad. Burgess Meredith, he was on the list. He worked again. He was great in Batman Ro- in the Rocky movies. Oh yeah, that. Too. Oh, in Batman. Yeah, remember the penguin. Um, so Zero Mostel, he was on there. He was great in the producers. Pete Seeger. He was folk singer. Yeah. <laughs> So um, there were, like, real repercussions of this, not just, you know, basically um, a, a single senator deciding that he was going to interpret the Constitution any way he liked. Yeah. Um, not just whipping up this fear among the average American person. Um, but there were people whose careers were ruined, whose lives were ruined, who who just lost their livelihoods because they went to a communist meeting or something 10 years before. Or maybe even were communists. Right. Probably the big problem with this is um, McCarthy took a really Ayn Rand-esque approach to this where he kind of interpreted allowing Hollywood to espouse any kind of um, communist ideas as a moral crime. Just like, um, you know, recently Congress tried to go after um, NPR for having liberal bias. They were going to cut off its funding. Right. It's very Randian, where it's a moral crime to support something that's trying to destroy you. And McCarthy definitely had that that viewpoint, and I think that's why he was going after Hollywood himself. sure. Or at least supporting it. Well, because, yeah, they were supposedly making movies that uh, subversively, you know, supported communism. But the problem is, is that's going after the intellectuals. He's not going after the spies any longer. He's going after communist thinkers. Yeah. Like, people who aren't trying to overthrow the government, they just think communism's a better idea. Yeah. And that's when that's 
going after spies, I don't think anybody really has a problem with that, but he went well beyond that. So that, combined with his tactics, have basically smeared his name through the mud for the rest of history. It's true. Uh, if you're interested in some good movies on, on the Blacklist era, uh, Guilty by Suspicion is one. De Niro, really good movie. Mm-hmm. And Good Night, Good Luck, of course, which was awesome. Or just read The Crucible. That was great. Arthur Miller famously in 1953 wrote a play that uh, was a very thinly veiled attack on McCarthyism by way of the uh, the portal was the uh, the witch hunts, the Salem witch trials, which yeah. it's basically like, here's what's going on now. Yeah. Goody McCarthy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Surprised he didn't just outright say it. Um, also, he went after um, books, too. He apparently had people uh, scan the libraries for books that contain anti-American sentiments. They identified 30,000 titles and purged libraries of these books. What a jerk. So um, I said it. You said it. So, Chuck, this guy, at one point, in 1954, at his peak, there was a poll taken that found, uh, it was a Gallup poll, so you know that's quality. Yeah. Uh, 50% of the American people had a favorable opinion of McCarthy. Like, I don't think Ronald Reagan even ever had 50%. Yeah. And everybody loved Uncle Ronnie. <laughs> well, that was in January. That same poll taken in June saw that number fall to 34% for very good reason. What happened? What happened? What happened was he made the mis- Well, he didn't make the mistake. Uh, President Eisenhower, for the very first time in broadcast history, said, let's broadcast these hearings. And this, this time it wasn't the Hollywood uh, blacklist uh, hearings. It was the uh, his war on the army. Yeah, which is a bad move to do when your president <laughs> yeah. is a decorated general from the last war like five years before. Yeah, it was called the Army McCarthy hearings broadcast in 1954 on live television. And um, after some what of a mundane start to the hearings, he started uh, accusing very heavily decorated and respected army officers of uh, not being fit to wear the uniform. Uh, He told Brigadier General Ralph uh, Zwicker, he compared him mentally to a five-year-old, said he was a disgrace to the uniform. (laughs) And then everyone watching this on TV was like, wait a minute, Wait, this is what he's been doing? This guy is a total jerk. Yeah, because before they were, um, there were transcripts and there were minutes, but they were classified. Nobody read. Yeah. Well, no, they weren't out. The media was also very sympathetic, so they were portraying everything in a real light. So basically, Eisenhower was like, I'm going to give you a little rope, and I think you'll go hang yourself with it. And he did. Yep. Um, And the American public turned on him like crazy. Uh, Truman, or I'm sorry, not Truman, but Eisenhower um, also instructed his vice president, Richard Nixon, to go speak vaguely but publicly against McCarthy, which he did, which gave the media tacit approval to go after McCarthy. He gave who? The media. No, but who did he get to talk to? Oh, Nixon. Oh, okay. Nixon was Eisenhower's VP. Oh, right, And right, Nixon right. went out there and was like, oh, okay, I love the smartest <laughs> right. guy through the mud. Um, and he, uh, yeah, after that, the, the floodgates opened, and all of a sudden everybody was all against McCarthy. Yeah. Because basically Nixon had been like, the government's against McCarthy too. And the army started feeding the media. Army intelligence had dirt on McCarthy. He used his office, or tried to, unsuccessfully, uh-huh. um, to influence the, the army to keep from drafting um, David Shine, Roy Cohn's lover, or aide. Uh-huh. Um, 
and he, he it didn't work. And then once he was drafted, they he used he tried to use his influence again to to get the army to take it easy on the guy, so they, he wouldn't go into battle. Um, so they released that to the media. So this guy who's like, you know, smearing decorated army generals, yeah, on TV, right? Has has tried to use his power to keep somebody else from having to serve. That didn't play very well either. So basically, they censure him, right? Yeah, they said, you know what, uh, we don't like you anymore. <laughs> I think that's the official statement. Yeah, was we don't like you anymore. Um, cruel and reckless, and he was censured by a vote of 65 to 22. Uh, originally in 1954, there were 46 charges of abuse of uh, legislative power, but they reduced that to two, or they only censured him on two because they didn't want to appear like they were big softies on communism. They right. were trying to strike the right balance of getting him out of there without looking like they're, you know, commies right. themselves. Yeah. Um, so he, he remained... Uh, in office, at least for a little while longer. Um, but uh, at age 48, in 1957, he died of acute hepatitis from alcohol abuse. If you're 48 and you die from alcohol abuse, then... You've been drinking since you were one and a half. Yeah, he said, apparently, I read some biography a uh, bit that said that he, uh, when he was on the wagon, that meant he just drank beer. Crazy. And didn't drink whiskey. Wow. So when he quit drinking, <laughs> it meant he only drank beer. He was like Dennis Hopper in Hoosiers, except in the Senate. Very powerful. <laughs> Wait, so he was like Ted Kennedy. Well, he was actually a friend of the Kennedys, which is weird because Kennedys were very liberal, obviously, but he was Catholic. He identified with the Kennedys because they were Catholic. Mm-hmm. Joseph Kennedy was big anti-communist, mm-hmm. and he thought, hey, if I can help this guy get into office, then that will be a good road paved for other Catholics like my sons. Like my Johnny. Like my Johnny. My Teddy and, and my, my Bobby. And my Bobby. <laughs> and like I said earlier, he dated two of the daughters, supposedly. And, um, well, not supposedly he did. I just don't know what went on on those dates. <laughs> and um, uh, John Kennedy was very quiet about this whole thing. He never came out and attacked him because... Uh, McCarthy was very uh, had a lot of sway in campaigning against uh, Democrats mm-hmm. in elections, yeah. and he never did that to to John F. Kennedy. Huh. So Kennedy kind of laid off when it came time to attack McCarthy. Gotcha. And I think Bobby Kennedy actually worked with him. Well, that was another abuse. Like basically, he used this whole hysteria and the power given to him by by targeting New Deal Democrats and basically helping further Republican policies rather than going after the communists. Yeah, he he, uh, he was quoted one time saying that Democrats uh, had been operating on, quote, 20 years of treason. So, like, <laughs> he accused them of being treasonous, Democrats. Right. And uh, Truman um, once referred to him as the best asset the Kremlin has and said he was out to sabotage the foreign policy of the United States. So, Crazy. man, they were not, they, he did not get along. With anyone. So, Chuck. Outside of his group, of course. Here's the kicker. As shamed and publicly humiliated and just kicked to the curb that Joseph McCarthy, the big jerk, was, he was right in a lot of instances. He was, <laughs> in a way. Um, I have a historian on my on my speed dial named John Earl Haynes. Oh, yeah, John. He went over the Venona transcripts, and his conclusion was that out of 159 people identified by McCarthy, uh, nine of them were aiding Soviet espionage efforts. 
And he said a majority of those could legitimately have been considered risks, but a substantial minority could not. So he has nine people, which included a captain in the Navy, mm-hmm. uh, Davy, who was still in the Navy. <laughs> and I imagine he would be for life. <laughs> two, to- two atomic spies, someone who held meetings with Churchill and Roosevelt. Yeah, who who is that? I don't know. I couldn't find out. I'm very curious. Um, and somebody who held the top office in today's equivalent of the CIA. Oh, yeah? It also says 10 senior-level officials uh, were also later shown to have had communist ties, even though they weren't necessarily uh, a security risk. Right. So there were a... Um, you can also make the case that if you cast a wide enough net, you're going to catch some... Some tuna along with the sea spiders, as the old <laughs> saying goes. Yeah, it's it's still divided. Like some people, Ann Coulter loves the guy now and said, you know, history has shown that he was right about it all. Is she still around? Yeah, she's alive. Okay. Well, what do you, what do you think happened to her? I just thought she fell off the radar. Oh, I don't know. Okay. I'm not, she's not on my radar, but I'm sure she's on somebody's radar. She's on Bill Maher's radar. She's on, um, oh man, Ted Nugent's radar. Really? Yeah, man. He used to, uh, he, he would guest host for Neil Bortz years back. Uh-huh. And I heard her on the, his show once, and um, he's like, I'm look, I'm just a guitar player. And she stopped him. She's like, I love it when you say that. <laughs> it was like, really, wow. Like, I was like, if I were Ted Nugent's wife, I'd be mad right now. That's a little creepy. Yeah. So you got anything else? No. So in this episode... If if you come across a uh, Stuff You Should Know quiz that mentions the McCarthyism episode, the four bands that made an appearance were Cheap Trick, yep. the Dixie Chicks, mm-hmm. Billy Joel, mm-hmm. and Ted Nugent. <laughs> wow. Who knew? Uh, I don't know. The Billy Joel. That was a cheap one. It was good. I'll take it, though. It was good, man. Um, so that's about it for McCarthyism. It's still alive today. Uh, instead of communists, we now uh, target Muslims. That's sure. uh, what a lot of people say. Um, and the Dixie Chicks. Muslims and the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> Basically anybody who opposes America invading other countries. That's the new McCarthyism. All right. Um, I could throw an REM reference in there. I already I already said it. We're not going to exhume him? What, what? Exhuming McCarthy. It's an REM song. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, how did you wait this long to throw that in? I don't know. I just figured it'd be a little cherry on top. All right. So the five bands are Cheap Trick, <laughs> Billy Joel, Dixie Chicks, uh, Ted Nugent, and R.E.M. But Ted Nugent was in R.E.M., so. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, just go type in McCarthyism, N-C-C-A-R-T-H-Y-I-S-M, into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and that will bring up new stuff that we didn't even touch on. Um, including factual errors about such groups as the uh, Rosenberg family. Uh, and I said search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, which means it's time, finally, for... S-Y-S-K Contest Rules. That's right, Josh. We are running a contest, our, our parent company, Discovery Channel, is, where you can come to Atlanta... And come see the studio, have lunch with me and you and lunch. Jerry, and uh, hang out a little bit. Yeah. And if you're interested in such a, a thing, I don't know why anyone would be, you can <laughs> enter in this contest. It runs through uh, December 31st. Winners are announced the week of 1-1-2012. Uh, 
Yeah. Right at the new year, you get a little gift. That's a big gift. Grand prize, trip for one to Atlanta to go on, uh, on an office and studio tour and have lunch with us. Includes hotel for one night, airfare up to five hundy, and an Amex gift card for travel incidentals. Which is nice. Yeah. $20 Amex gift card for the <laughs> toothbrush you forgot. You know how much it is? I don't even know. No, I don't. You're the guy with the list of rules in your hand. And there is also a referrer prize. So if you're person A, you enter the contest. Wait, is it refer or referrer? Okay. If you're person A and you refer someone to the contest and they win, then you get a Kindle Fire. So uh, person A has to click share. Person A and B... Uh, have to both enter the contest. This is so complex. And person B wins the grand prize. Person A wins the Kindle Fire. I would rather win a Kindle you Fire. Win, you win the grand prize if you can explain what you just read. Right. And if you want to enter this contest, go to uh, facebook.com slash HowStuffWorks. Mm-hmm. Or is it HowStuffWorks.com? I think it's HowStuffWorks. And go to the HowStuffWorks fan page, not the Stuff You Should Know page. How stuff works fan page. You gotta like it. Yep. And then enter it. It's right there on the on the page there, the front page. So you have to live in America. Yeah. And you have to be at least a semi computer literate to get to this Facebook page and like it. Yeah. But other than that, it's wide open. It's your big chance, probably once in a lifetime chance to know what Jerry smells like. Here's a spoiler, she smells very pleasantly. She does. Um so if you want to do that, go do that. Uh and if you want to get in touch with us via Twitter. We want them to call you on Twitter? <laughs> Via Twitter? Yes. Weird. Uh, you can look us up. It's uh, Our handle is at SYSK Podcast. Uh, you can visit our Facebook page, too, while you're on Facebook. Go to Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And, and you can also send us a good old-fashioned email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 